Amen. That is our future. That is our future. Someday, someday, He will come and we will stand with Him in glory. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke as we continue our series through verse by verse, the Gospel of Luke, cover to cover. I want to begin by talking about a bit of a dynamic that uh, unless you're an elder, you may not come in contact a lot with, but as elders especially, shepherding in the church, there are dynamics that you run into. Sometimes um, you can kind of sense, you know, this, uh, the sway or the, the, the lean of, of one way or another. And so there's a, a dynamic that I've witnessed over the years in church work that I title ecclesiastical drift. Uh, it's the drift of the church. And it will happen unless it is guarded against The way that you stand against ecclesiastical drift is by keeping faithful to this book. This is the Word of God. It is true, and it is authoritative. And it does not change based upon the cultural dynamic at work at the present place or location. It transcends time, culture, and and all of the, the pressures of any day. And so it's as true today as it was 100 years ago. For the church. It will be as true a hundred years from now for those who fill this church and by God's grace carry on the work after we're all dead and gone. This is our rock. We delight in the Word of God. We cling to it. And to the degree that we fail to do that, we will drift. We will drift. And churches this day are drifting all over the place. Entire denominations are adrift. There are two directions that I've seen this drift take place. Liberalism or legalism. Liberalism. It's interesting uh, to to note the relationship of these two words as it relates to the text. Liberalism many times will say, well, yeah, that's in the Bible, but, but we know better now. And if we're honest, we just, we're using this word evolution. We've evolved beyond that text, haven't we? Don't we know more now than they did then? We're smarter, more highly advanced, more intellectual, more enlightened than the Bible was when it was written, so we know better. Or it takes this form. Yeah, it's in there, but let's just not talk about it. Let's just pretend that it's not in there. Or it's in there, and we just don't like it, and it shouldn't be in there. And we disagree. And so we're going to, not only are we not going to talk about it, we're going to flat out disagree with it and ignore it completely. Write it off. Liberalism is the taking away from the Word of God. It's when we see the Word of God, the truth of God, and we say, eh, take it or leave it. And sad, but true, it can start small, but it never wants to stay small. I'll tell you what it targets. The gospel itself is in the crosshairs. Liberalism in Satan's temptation to this drift is leave the gospel such that you gather in a church and you wonder, why are we even here? What is it that we are proclaiming? What is our message? What it boils down to is just feel good about yourself, right? It's all about you. And and just we want to have a better life and just, we're just going to give you empty moralism. Just here, feel good about you. I hate that form of drift. 
with a passion because God does. And shepherds are called to guard against that. We all are called to guard against that. But the opposite of this is also toxic and deadly to the church. Legalism. How does it relate to the book? Well, it adds to it. It adds to it. It says, well, these are God's laws, but boy, we need to be a little more specific than that. So yeah, he says, you shouldn't do this. Let's come up with a hundred specifics on what that means and then hold everybody to that checklist and when they do it they feel good about themselves and when they don't they feel horrible about themselves legalism is list making to earn or add to some kind of some some reception of favor because of my work i somehow merit the favor of god because i've kept the list Legalism is many times extremely fear-based. You can get into legalism trying to avoid liberalism. And there are churches that have done exactly that. Their fear of becoming liberal makes them legalistic. And they have just massive amounts of additions to the Word of God. Rules, regulations, restrictions, dress codes, things that you are to do, things you are not to do. And becoming a Christian becomes very complicated. I'll tell you what happens in this. Self-righteousness takes the place of Christ-righteousness. Comparison can takes, takes the place over community. Right? It turns into competition, really. My performance held up against your performance. Who is holier? It is toxic and lethal in the church. In my time at this church, we have guarded against both of these. We've sought and prayed and at times held meetings and had confrontations at points along the way to, to seek to stay faithful to the text. I remember a situation where I really actually had someone tell me with passion, there should never be a time when a woman sets foot on this stage. And I'm like, okay, um, help me find that verse. I, I'm looking for it. I, I don't see it in here. How did you get that? Where did that come from? That is not who we are as a church. We want to be a Bible church, a church that gathers around the Scriptures and lets the Lord lead us and guide us. And so, today, the topic before us from these verses, legalism or love. The Pharisees were unbelievably good at legalism. They were professional legalists. And they spent a lot of time worrying about how other people were measuring up to their standard, their rules. And uh, Jesus, <laughs> he had no time for this stuff. And so we come now to this text. It's an amazing passage. And uh, I just want to take it little by little. Let me open in prayer as we, as we dive in together into these verses. Lord, we need you in this work. We need your wisdom. We need clarity. And oh, Father, we need your word. We need truth with a capital T. The simple, straightforward, authoritative truth that simplifies the complexities of our day and cuts through the fog and gives us the light of life and joy and peace. 
We thank you that we find all of this in our Savior, your Son, Jesus, and we pray now, Lord, that even through him, in his name, you would meet us and help us today to negotiate the challenges of uh, avoiding the pitfalls of both legalism and liberalism. Strengthen our church through this work today, even now. Move in us and help us to be on our guard against these things so that we might be the kind of people who love like you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's begin in verse 1. I, I titled this, Defiling the Sabbath. And uh, this is really the accusation that the, the Pharisees bring against Jesus. But ironically, I think it would be the right and true accusation Jesus is bringing against the Pharisees. Let's see how this goes. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Let's just examine this a little bit. So what day is it? Well, it's the Sabbath day. It's Saturday. Okay? It's just, this is uh, the, the, the time in which Jesus lived. And this was before the, the work of the cross and his resurrection Sunday, which we consider V-Day, Victory Day, which is why our Sabbath is Sunday now, right? We, we celebrate the finished work of Christ on Sunday and that becomes our day of rejoicing and rest. But at this time still, it was Saturday, and for faithful Jews, Saturday was a very significant day. Saturday, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. And you remember on the corners of the grain fields, the command was to leave the corners unharvested so that people could come and glean, people in need, those who were hungry. And his disciples, it says, they're they just walking through. Just picture this, okay? They're walking through. Grab a head of grain. Rub it in your hands. Blow out the chaff. And then you're just having a snack. It's a very healthy, multi-grain snack. I think that many nutritionists would endorse it. It's just, how much work did that require? They're hardly even thinking about it. These guys are just walking around having a snack. But who's following them? Who's watching them like a hawk? the Pharisees. They're trying to catch Jesus in a position where he has no answer to their accusation. And so they're coming up with all these crazy ideas as to why he's wrong and what, did he, what is he doing that we can accuse him for. They're hovering. Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So the question then begs, what is the accusation here? What is it that they see as wrong? Do they think he's stealing pilfering, taking from the grain that he shouldn't? No, that's not the, that's not the problem. They're not upset about that. He's well within, and, and his disciples are well within bounds there. That's not the offense. It's not the action. It's the day of the action. It's, that's their issue. You did what you just did on the Sabbath day. Hmm. Now, we have to have fresh in our minds the significance of the Sabbath especially to the Jews. This is a big deal. There are two significant signs that are given to God's people to set them apart from the nation. Uh, one is circumcision. It is the physical carrying in their body of distinction from the nations. The second is the setting aside of the day that is holy unto the Lord, a day that they were not to work. 
So you have a holy people, a holy place, the temple where they gather, uh, or the tabernacle earlier on, and then a holy day, a holy day, or a holiday, as we might call it. We have lots of them now. The Jews had a holy day every single Saturday. And uh, this is where it was instituted, although it, you, the case can be made that it started in creation itself because it's the only commandment, the fourth commandment here, that appeals to the creation itself. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or your, the sojourner within your gates. For, you see the appeal? The basis of this set-apart day is creation. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, a holy day. Now, you can capture this. On that day, on the seventh day, you are to not work, okay? Don't work on the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Don't profane that day. And if you go back to that Exodus series, one of the things we saw is that the work done the other six days was trusting then Lord, the Lord would provide for that seventh day, especially when they were gathering manna, right? You gather only enough for one day, but the day before the holy day, the Sabbath day, you gather enough for two days, and guess what happens? God miraculously keeps it from spoiling so that on the Sabbath, you have enough food for the day. It was an act of faith to trust him that I don't have to be a machine seven days a week to produce, to keep myself alive. I can trust the Lord with one full day, not earn, not work, not produce, rest. Does that sound like a wonderful thing? I love my Sabbath days. Now, ironically, I work on your Sabbath day. It's my work day, one of my biggest work days. Mondays are my Sabbath. That's the day that I rest, and I just unplug. And often, I'm hard to get a hold of on Mondays, unless it's a big emergency, because I'm just resting and recovering and relaxing, enjoying the Lord. Sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. So they had to work and prepare and make sure that they were, what they were doing on Friday night didn't require continued doing on Saturday. So they had to finish their work Friday before sundown and be ready so that they could make it all the way to sundown Saturday night. Now, here's what happens. The Word of God says, just don't work. But then along comes someone who, well, you know what? It would be a lot easier if we had a list, right? Just can you give us some rules for rest? And, you know, there's certain personalities. If you go on vacation and you don't like a plan, you just are on vacation, you would hate what they did here. We need rules for rest. We need to have a prescription for every piece of our rest day. And so they did that. They added these rabbis and scribes. They invented all kinds of rules for how you were to rest and what was right kind of rest and what was wrong kind of rest and even in our day to day it will blow your mind all of the things that uh, still are practiced 
Here's 39 prohibited activities in the Mishnah Shabbat 7.2. Okay? You cannot sow, plow, uh, reap, bind, sheaves, thresh, or winnow. Now, you see the asterisk there? Those three asterisks, reaping, threshing, and winnowing. Here we go. I'm walking through the field, reaping. Uh-oh, broke one. Threshing, broke another. <laughs> winnowing, oh! I'm a horrible sinner. This is man's law. This is details that they've built out. These are all the things you can't do. The list goes on. That, okay, and, and you go all the way down here. Where does it say you can't start a fire? Okay, kindling, kindling a fire or putting out a fire. You hope your house doesn't catch fire on the Sabbath because it's burning down, okay? <laughs> Today, there are elevators in Israel. They are called Shabbat elevators. You get on this elevator, and as a faithful practicing Jew, because you cannot kindle a fire, you cannot establish an electrical current either in our day. This is the, this is, you cannot push a button, you cannot throw a light switch. So this elevator stops on every single floor, every single floor. You get on the elevator, you can't push a button, and you wait. Doors open, everybody in there, anyone getting off? No. Next floor, anyone here? No. That's what you do on the Sabbath. You can walk 1,999 paces and not a step more. Because if you do, you've sinned. You've broken the Sabbath. You've worked. You might have broken a sweat. It doesn't matter if you break a sweat on the 1,500th step. But if, you, I mean, if you're not home by 1,999, you're sitting under a tree for a while. Okay? This is where stuff goes upside down. They turned it into stressful labor of trying to rest. It's stressful to try not to offend the Lord and break all their rules. Hmm. They accused Jesus and his disciples of flagrant disobedience. And I think Jesus saw this coming, and I think he looked forward to this exchange because this was silliness, and it continues to be in our day. You invent a bunch of rules, you add them to the Scripture, and you feel good when you do them. You feel bad when you don't. It's all about what I do or don't do. You miss the whole point. Hmm. Legalism loves to pound the gavel. Notice how they're following on the heels of Jesus and his disciples. They catch him. Oh, look! You see that? He, did. he was winnowing. He was harvesting, threshing, whatever you call it. Oh, they did all three of them. Gavel, pound, boom, guilty, right there. Legalism is never satisfied with simply following a, a set of guidelines in, in itself. Now, there are many things you can do on a Sabbath day of rest that, that, that you can choose to honor the Lord. I love that there are certain businesses that are closed. Praise God for that. But as soon as one business points the finger to another business and says, we close, you don't, you're in sin. We've begun to make a list of things acceptable or not. So it's okay if you want to please the Lord and honor the Lord in certain practices or th things you do or don't do, but you have to be very careful here. Very careful. Legalism loves an audience. Legalism loves to point out self-righteousness and to point out 
failure and uh, uh, gives quick disapproval to those who fail to meet the code and obey all of the little minutiae of the details. How is Jesus going to respond? The Lord of the Sabbath is about to speak here. Verse 3, Jesus answered them and said, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He rose, and uh, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Just stop and consider this. So just, this is what Jesus responds with. There would have been a number of ways Jesus could have responded. He could have said just flat out, uh, your rules are insane. We are not bound to keep them. But instead, where did he go? Look at where he went. He went to the book. He went to the book. Uh, didn't you read this? This is in your Bible. Do you not know the precedent here? Look at what David did. There's a lot going on in this. One thing that's happening here is Jesus is drawing attention to the greatest king Israel has ever known. And in this, there is a strong messianic connection. Whenever the Jewish people think of David, they long for the king of kings, the one who is to come, the one who is to, to, to reign over the throne of David forever. And I think Jesus is, is connecting dots whether they land in the Pharisees or not uh, is hard to say. But certainly for us, we should see Jesus is pointing to David and then saying, do you, do you realize if David did this and I do this, there's someone greater than David who is here. That's what Jesus is pointing us to. Eating the bread of the presence from the tabernacle. The story comes out of 1 Samuel. It's an amazing story. I'll let you read that another time. Uh, but David and his men are running from Saul. He has his mighty men. They're on the run. They're starving hungry. They go to the tabernacle, and he says to the priest, do you have any food? And the priest says, no, we don't have any food. We don't have any bread. The only bread we have is the, the show bread, the, the, the bread of the presence that's literally been sitting before the face of the Lord for seven days. That bread was only to be eaten by the Aaronic priesthood. That was the, the Lord's restriction. After seven days, the priests could eat it alone. And David says, we'd like that bread. Can, can you give us that bread? And the priest says, well, hold on now. Are your men walking in upright ways? Are they holy? Have they been with women? All right, so he's, he wants to know, are they sexually pure? And David's like, uh, we're in the middle of a desert here, running for our lives. We're okay, all right? There's no women around. And, and he speaks for these men. He knows them well. So holiness is still in view. But then this priest gives David and his men those 12 loaves of bread. And they eat, and their hunger is met with the, 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 the provision of God. Why was David not condemned? This is what Jesus is pointing at. There's something operating in this exchange that he wants the Pharisees to note, and they have been missing this. Why was David not condemned? In the parallel accounts, we have some words that are built out. Luke doesn't include all of this exchange, but Matthew and Mark 
give us a little glimpse into here, and I, th- I think they show us the heart of the law. Let's be clear. God's law is good. It's for our good. His law is, is a gift, not a curse. Everything that God is, he, 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 he calls us to, and His commandments are good and right and pure and delightful. David loved the law of God. He didn't go into the temple to transgress the law. He went into the temple because he was starving hungry and in need, in need of mercy. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, the exact same parallel passage. He says, if you had known what this means, and then he quotes from Hosea 6, verse 6, God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Wow. And then he says this, if you knew what that means, you would not have condemned the guiltless as he looks at his disciples. These men grabbing this grain and having a snack of grain on the Sabbath day are guiltless. And if you understood, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, then you would never condemn these men for that action. Their list of rules had missed the entire point. The Sabbath was a day of rest, of refreshment. They were not working, they were refreshing. They were meeting their hunger. And these legalistic Pharisees, all they wanted was their list checked off. Raw, cold, duty. And legalism. Doesn't matter what your heart's doing. Doesn't matter what's happening on the inside. You just stand up and you sing. And then when you're supposed to sit, you sit down. And when you come, you come. And you never miss a Sunday. Why? Because it's what you're supposed to do. You see what you see how this goes? Don't pay attention to anything inside. Your love for the Lord, your fire, your passion, your heart for Him, doesn't matter. You just do. That's legalism. God always points to the heart. To the heart. Is it legalism or will it be mercy? Jesus says it's mercy. That's the heart of the law. That's the whole point of the Sabbath day is rest. And then he says this. I love this. In Mark 2, these words meet this context as well. He said, by the way, guys, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Wow. The Pharisees and their system had so turned upside down the Sabbath that it was like people were there trying to serve the Sabbath rather than God saying, I give you a gift. Rest. Be refreshed. Enjoy me. Take a day and delight in rest. They had created labor and rules and stress and fear and judgment. Restrictions, requirements, rules, regulations, or rest. Now, let me be clear. I don't want to overstate the point. The law is good. We are called to delight in the Lord. We are called, I believe, to to cease from our labor 
and honor Him with the day. But we should do it in a way that is getting to the heart of His command. Rest. Rest. Be refreshed in God. And then Jesus says this. This would... <laughs> I, I love this one. He, every now and then, Jesus just drops these things. It's, this is a mic drop moment. That This exchange ends right here. Uh, he said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, the most sacred, holy day to these Pharisees is the Sabbath day. And this rabbi, Jesus, just declared himself the sovereign over the Sabbath. As if to say, you have no right to challenge my authority about what Sabbath means. And then you just have to stop and think, who was it that the Lord created all things through? Christ. It was the Son. God the Father, through whom the Son, He created through the Son all that is. And so it was the Son as well who rested. The person of the Godhead, He rested on the seventh day. This is Jesus pre-incarnate. Before the incarnation, he is the one who rested first. And he is the focus of the rest. Why is there a day of rest? Ultimately, yes, it's a good gift. Yes, it's a call. It's a pattern. It's a rhythm of our week. Yes, it's all of that. But ultimately, the reason we have a day of rest is because that day itself points to Jesus, who is our only Sabbath rest. The legalists want to say you have to work, you have to work, you have to work. And Jesus says, not when I'm on the scene. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden under that yoke, you come and take my yoke. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you will find Sabbath rest. This is Jesus. He cuts through the legalism like a hot knife through butter. And this exchange is done. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, let's go on to the next interaction. This takes place on another Sabbath day. Luke wants to see these, so he puts them together. Two Sabbath interactions with legalistic people, Pharisees, scribes. Verse 6, locked in legalism. On another Sabbath, he entered... Uh, the synagogue, and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. Okay, just put ourselves a little in this situation. Here we have Jesus on a Sabbath day doing what he did on the Sabbath, right? Teaching. He is in church, in the synagogue. And he's in there, and Jesus is teaching. So just Think about this. The most prolific teacher the world has ever heard is teaching. They hear it. They're they're there. Jesus is teaching the wisdom of God, the voice of God, the message of God, the, the call of Christ. The kingdom is near. He's all of these words are coming from Jesus. And what is it that the Pharisees are doing? They're plotting. They don't hear a word. They are so locked in their legalistic fervor 
that they don't even listen to the Son of God in front of them as He speaks life and hope. That's hard hearts. What was their plot? Well, there was a man there whose right hand was withered. His right hand was withered. It just literally means deflated, just shrunken. It, it, it was atrophied. He had some accident or birth defect or whatever it was. He was unable to use his hand, which usually in this day means he would have been impoverished because he couldn't work like other, other men. So his right hand was withered, and he was there. And what did Jesus do many times in conjunction with his teaching to confirm his authority? Miracles. Healing. He would display his godness in his proclamation of the kingdom and then uh, give evidence of his authority through signs and wonders. So they say, well, this is a perfect opportunity. It's the Sabbath, and here's a man in need. And let's see if we can catch him. Because Jesus, if we know Jesus, he's going to have compassion on this guy. As soon as he does this, we got him. And so they're on the edge of their seat, and they're watching, and they're, and they're waiting. And you can just see Jesus through the Spirit. He sees their hearts. He sees their plotting. He understands what they want to see take place so that they can catch him. Hmm. That's the scene. Legalism's trap. I want to just give you a glimpse into a modern-day experience of this. I, uh, years ago, preached a sermon. We had a, a worship service that was just uniquely powerful. God was working. I just remember the worship that morning. We, we locked eyes with the Lord in a special way. God was moving among his people. The sermon was preached. The people responded in song from the heart, praise. And then after the service, a number of people were coming and saying, oh man, the Lord just really met me. That, that word got me right there in the heart. And then a, a man came up and he said, I, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay, yeah, what, what you got? He said, well, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but uh, uh, I, just, I just had the most difficult time this morning. I said, what, notice what? And then I began to worry. Like, did I mishandle a verse? Did I say something wrong? Did, you know, was it me? And, and what did I do? And he was just serious and upset. And he said, uh, I was prevented from worshiping today because someone on the worship team was wearing brightly colored socks. And <laughs> I'm not kidding. And those socks were so offensive. They were so distracting. All I could see was that Argyle sock. And, and then he asked me, did you, see, did, did you see them? And I'm like, were you in this church this morning? What, what happened? He was locked in legalism. He missed God's voice. He missed engaging with the glory of God, delighting in Him over a pair of socks. I have no time for that. No time for that. That's not who we are as a church. And it's not who we're going to be. Whether it's tears in someone's jeans 
or a hat or a shirt or someone's not wearing a tie at the community. That's not who we are, right? There's not a dress code at this church. We come to worship the Lord. We don't have a, a, a bouncer at the door holding it up and saying, purple hair, nope, that's not okay. Go back, cut it off, and then you can come in the door. No, that's not how we roll. The doors are wide open. Come and worship. Hmm. I went to Moody Bible Institute with Jenny, and the founder of the school was a fellow named Dwight Lyman Moody. That's him. An amazing evangelist, powerful man of God. You can still hear some of his sermons because they captured him on these little wax recording things. It's amazing. I love Dwight Lyman Moody and the school that he founded blessed my life. However, the school that he founded, a point along the way, began to write rules and laws and dress codes and all kinds of things. And I'm okay with, with you know, having a code of conduct and, and these things. We've got to be careful. We want to be respectful of the city and all of that. I get it. You've got to do it to some degree. But how do you guard against legalism? So when I went to the school, I signed the code of conduct and the dress code, and I happily abided by it my whole four years there. I, they were paying for my tuition, so I'm not going to complain, okay? Moody was a tuition-free Bible school, and I graduated debt-free. By the grace of God, I'll jump through rings of fire if you want for that. I mean, that's, that's totally fine with me. However, the, the thing with facial hair always confused me, okay? In the, in the Moody handbook, it said uh, men are not allowed to have facial hair. And I'm like, okay, wait, the cover, there's that guy. <laughs> How did we get here? Because I'm thinking we should be required to have this monster beard like that guy. <laughs> but you, you read on. It wasn't that they were against facial hair categorically. It's that you could not grow facial hair while active at the school. You had to do it over summer, okay? So then you're like, well, what is the offense here? Because I'm trying my hardest to grow facial hair. I'm 19 years old. If I can get three or four of them to happen, I'm celebrating, right? <laughs> it was the shadow that they feared. The shadow. Like, you, you guys know what I'm talking about. You don't shave for three or four days. You get that, that shadow thing. That was off. It's out of bounds at Moody. You can have a full beard as long as it's trimmed and it's not touching your coat or whatever. And you can be clean shaven, but you cannot be in between. That's out of bounds. And I'm just shaking my head like, I, who comes up with that as the, you know, the thing? And then Michael W. Smith comes to the school. And in, you know back then, right, 90s, Smitty, he had that shadow going. And all the guys were like, dude, that guy's got a shadow. Look at that. How does he get away with that? So it's just comical, and I, I, don't, I don't poke at, at, at Moody Bible Institute. Frankly, they've, they've solved a lot of their legalistic issues. They just did it after I graduated, sadly, so now you can wear jeans, and it's, it's wonderful. But but just want to say how easy it is to fall into this, right? Well, everybody should do this, and then, well, everybody should do this and this and this. And all of a sudden, you have 39 laws, and then you have 3,900. And you've missed the entire point. So when you come to Good Shepherd Community Church, 
Be who you are. Okay? You talk about, what, you're, what should I wear to church? Oh, what should I wear? Be who you are. Honor the Lord. Okay? Honor the Lord. Think about the Lord as you are in your closet. It's good to do that. Honor the Lord with what you choose to wear. Show regard for one another. We care about uh, modesty in the church. It, it matters. And, and ladies especially, we, we're grateful for your careful choices in, in modesty. We don't have a code where we say, okay, get the measuring tape out. How many inches around the knee are we going to allow for? No. Be modest. Show regard to one another. Honor the Lord. And then come to worship. Okay? Come to worship. Not worry about your clothes. I've been wearing these shoes for about seven years straight. I only wear them to preach. Uh, these jeans are my preaching jeans. I, I preach in these jeans. That's the only time I wear them, basically. Um, just make it a non-issue. We're worshiping Christ. May we guard against that in that way. Some of the worst displays of legalism are bound up in dress codes, and they happen, sadly, in churches, and they shouldn't. Now, how is the, the Lord, our Savior, going to respond to this the situation? It's, it's, it's reaching a climax, and Jesus, at a point along the way in his teaching, it says he, he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And the man rose and stood there. Now, just think of how this goes. Glenn, you got a sweater? Okay, come on up here, brother. Can you get that, wither that hand for me? The right hand. Okay, maybe down, it's like down in here. Okay. All right, so he, Jesus calls this man out from the congregation, brings him up here. This is an act of faith. This man comes in faith. He knows what Jesus can do. This may be the moment where he receives mercy, kindness, healing from Christ. But before he heals this man, notice what Jesus did. Verse 9. He says, I, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or, or harm? To save life or to destroy it? And then verse 10. And after looking around at all of them. So just so picture this. Here's the man, right? And, and he's starting to sweat. He's nervous. He's in front of the people, kind of like I am right now. And, and, and then Jesus just stops and he begins to look right through every person. He sees the heart. He knows. And here's the legalists out there. He's going to do it. We almost have him. I can't wait to see him sin so we can accuse him. But that wasn't everybody in the crowd, was it? Some in the synagogue we're leaning forward and like, is he going to see this? We get to see him heal? What an amazing teacher. Now he's going to heal this poor man with a withered hand. We know this man. He's going to heal him. Anticipation in two very different directions, isn't it? And in that silence, Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Good. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> and he did so. And before their eyes, his hand was restored. I don't, sometimes we read this and we don't feel, 
they witnessed a shriveled hand inflate. It grew. It was strengthened. It was perfectly healed. The muscles were toned. It was strong. He left that synagogue with a useful hand. Those people witnessed it. His joy. Think of the joy of the man whose hand was healed. His life has changed. Jesus takes it right to him. He calls their bluff. He says, you want to see that? I'll show it to you. I will do exactly what you want to see. How will the legalist respond? Here's what we long to see. Here's, here's what would have been so fitting a response. They praised God and glorified the Lord for what they had seen in their midst and for what they had heard from Jesus. And they saw Jesus as the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Savior. And they experienced a glimpse into the kingdom. And they softened their hearts. And they repented of their sinful, silly pharisaical intentions and they follow Jesus. Here's how they responded. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. (laughs) the, The words fail us. That word fury, they lost their minds. They freaked out They went ballistic that Jesus would do that for that man. On the Sabbath, who does he think he is? Hmm. Jesus in Matthew 15 said this, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All of their additions, all of their additions, they teach as doctrine. And it's vain. It's vain worship. Their hearts were harder than ever. On the Sabbath day, the call is heal, love, show mercy, be kind. What were they plotting to do to Jesus? Kill. They <laughs> were plotting his death. Now you ask the question, who is transgressing the Sabbath? What a powerful interaction we have here. The question begs, legalism or love? Legalism or love? We have a choice to make, not only as a church, but as individuals. How are we going to walk with the Lord? How are we going to journey together with one another? How are we going to greet folks who come in the doors who are new? What kind of church are we going to be? I would just call us this morning to the heart of our Savior, to the heart of His good and perfect gift of commands. A loving and merciful Savior we have in Jesus and we are called to be a people of mercy and love.
let's work hard at keeping the simple things in the Word of God simple. Cut through all the craziness of our culture and go straight to the heart. This man had a need. Jesus met him in that need and changed his life. Mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. At the end of the day, our rest is only found in Jesus. His work is finished. We don't have to try to earn the favor of God that we already have in Jesus. His work, not ours. Lord, we give praise to you for what we witness today in these verses. Oh, thank you for being such an amazingly good God. All of the gods of the nations are angry, want to be appeased, impossible with their commands. Work, 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 perform. But you, O oh Lord, you command and then you send your Son to satisfy perfectly all of your commands in ways we could never. And then He lays His life down to pay for our failure to obey you, our offenses against you. And then you raise Him after three days, accepting His perfect sacrifice on our behalf so that we can trust in Him and have life and forgiveness and relationship with you. What an amazing God you are. You're so good to us. We do not deserve this great gift that we have been given in Jesus, but we delight in it. We delight in Him. We delight in you, our Father. And we delight that the work is finished and that our joy is, is a joy that leads us to obedience because we're yours and we walk with you. Thank you for the clarity and the simplicity of just knowing you and loving you and obeying you from the heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.